0: Let's pray. Father, I pray that even this morning as we've gathered in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we have brought our hearts and our minds, our our, our thinking and our singing together, our, our words in prayer together, I pray that we are truly of one heart and mind as, those who worship you in spirit and in truth. And that means that we worship you as yes and amen in Jesus our Lord, the one who is made known to us and whose life is begun and uh, continued and perfected in us by your spirit. This breath from heaven has come and given life to dead bones. And as you have reconstituted the Abrahamic family in the Messiah, he, he did come to restore the houses of Israel, but so that Israel could begin its work of global ingathering, global testimony, global witness. And Father, we are the fruit of that faithfulness. We are the fruit of that renewed Israel in the Messiah. We are the fruit of the faithfulness of that renewed Israel as testifiers, as ambassadors of this great and glorious good news. And I pray that as those who are grafted into this Israel of God that has its substance in Jesus our Lord, that we would be faithful with our own calling, our own commission to be testifiers of the triumph of our God in Christ, that our God has indeed taken his throne and begun to reign. So as we continue our worship in consideration, study of your scriptures, I pray that you will minister to us, that you will encourage us, that you will instruct us, that you will transform us. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you will meet each one and that you will do a work of grace and goodness and loving kindness in each one's heart. Meet us according to your purpose, according to your wisdom, and build each one up in this most holy faith, we ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, again, from last week, we spent the, the week just talking about, or the time just talking about this particular theme of exile. And I made the, the claim that uh, this is the central theme that weaves together the scriptures, and not just even in the Old Testament, But as I mentioned even a few minutes ago, we see it introduced in Eden with the fall and the expulsion from Eden. And we see finally that exile, that principle, that reality of exile reconciled in uh, John's vision in Revelation 21 and 22 of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And the angelic proclamation, now the dwelling of God is with men. His name on their foreheads. At last, finally, fully, as God had pledged to Abraham, God has become the God of his people and they have become his people. I will be your God. You will be my people. And so this is the primary theme. Exile is the primary theme because it defines the creation's existence post-fall. The creation exists in a state of exile and therefore obviously the human race as a part of the creation sits in that same place. And in fact, the wider creations exile is because of human exile as we saw last time and what really is at the center of this people would say, well, you're kind of overstating this exile isn't really the issue because they're thinking about geographical displacement people being moved from their home or their place of habitation. And that can be a component. That sort of physical exile can be a component. But the basic uh, idea of exile is relational estrangement. And that's why it's this key theme that runs through the whole of the scripture. This is the essence of the problem. This is the essence of that which God has determined to address in relation to the messianic person. So we talked about the fact that the Egyptian exile is the great prototype of, um, of this exile and redemption from exile work. That God's great exodus, uh, his bringing of his people, delivering them from Egyptian bondage, bringing them to himself to dwell with him in his sanctuary land. That's the great prototype of this intent of God and this ultimate work of God. But in Israel's history, the climactic low point of this idea of exile was the captivity of the Northern and the Southern kingdoms. That condition from which Israel wasn't sure that they could be restored. And as I mentioned last time, and this is critically important to understand exile in this way shows us that it's wrong to think that Israel's exile ended when Cyrus ordered his edict, allowing the exiles to return back to Judea and rebuild the temple, rebuild the city. Many people say, well, that's when the exile ended. It lasted for 70 years and then they went back and that was the end of the story. Well, it wasn't because the fundamental problem had not been addressed. And we'll talk more about that today. But When we understand exile rightly, then we can understand why it is that Jesus was born into Israel's exile in order to end Israel's exile in order that when that occurred, then the world itself could be delivered from its own exile. And as I mentioned last time, that's at the center of the reason why Jesus picked Passover as the occasion for and the point of interpretation of his cross and what it was he was accomplishing So this is Israel's low point, but even more than Israel's low point, this is the low point for the creation because Israel, the Abrahamic people, were the ones that God had chosen to solve the problem, to be his instrument for solving the problem of the creation's exile. And Israel itself was captive to the same problem. Right, They could not be God's instrument for addressing exile, the exile of the creation, this relational estrangement, because they themselves sat in that same place. So the people chosen to end the creation's exile were themselves subject to it. But that alone tells us that if God was going to be faithful to his covenant with Abraham, that Israel, the Abrahamic people, would be this instrument, then this exile of Israel couldn't be the final word. So when we look at the return from captivity, the way the scripture deals with this issue of how did God resolve Israel's captivity, I want to treat it under the two aspects of it, which first, the sense in which that Return from captivity did fulfill God's promise, and the sense, more importantly, in which it did not. The sense in which physically and even in a preparatory way, the recovery of the exiles back to Jerusalem and Judea was a fulfillment of God's promise concerning the ending of exile, but ultimately that promise remained unfulfilled. So in terms of fulfilled promise, as we've seen, and hopefully we're aware at this point in time, God had been saying through his prophets all the way back to Moses, God had been saying that desolation, exile, and captivity were coming to the whole house of Israel. It would not be avoided. Because again, the relational estrangement ensured physical estrangement. The alienation in the relationship between God and his people ensured that one day they would be physically distanced from him as well. But that would not be the end of the relationship. We we read in Isaiah that God said, there is no certificate of divorce with Zion. I am sending her away. I'm stripping her of her children, but I am not divorcing her. And at the proper time, I will restore her back to myself. And we talked about the imagery in Hosea where he marries an adulterous wife as a a kind of living, physical, enacted prophecy of God's relationship with his covenant people. Hosea marries a harlotress woman. She strays from him. She, She leaves him. And God says, go and get her, buy her back. Bring her back into your house, but keep your distance from her. At some point in the future, then your intimacy with her will be restored. But at this point, bring her back, but keep her aloof from you in terms of your relationship. And God said, so it will be with the sons of Israel. I will bring them back to the land, but they will still be alienated from me until messiah the prince comes until this individual comes and then they will be restored back to me in the truest sense that's hosea 3 and we talked about last time how god had even named this man cyrus more than a century before he was born as the one that he would raise up that he would ordain to be his mashiach his anointed one the one Through whose regal power the captive exiles would be freed from their captivity and allowed to return to Judea to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city. This is the way 2 Chronicles ends. We talked about how 2 Chronicles is the end of the Hebrew Canon. The way they configure their canon of scripture, they put Second Chronicles last, and it ends on this high note of Cyrus issuing a decree that the exiles can return. And he acknowledges even in that, and and then Ezra, which follows right after Second Chronicles, starts at exactly the same point: Cyrus issuing his decree. He's a Persian king. He's conquered the Babylonians. He has control now of the Israelite people and the land of Palestine. He issues this decree and he acknowledges that the God of heaven has given me all of these kingdoms of the earth. And he has ordained me to issue a decree to send these Uh, Judean exiles back the people of Israel, whoever will return to do this work. So he acknowledges that he was doing that through the leading of Yahweh, the God of Israel, who's the God of all heaven. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that Cyrus had faith in the way we think about it, but he was aware of what he was doing. So Cyrus issues this decree, and this decree came 50 years after the destruction of Jerusalem about 50 years after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And and so these exiles begin to return, all from Judea who wanted to return. And uh, history records that even some individuals from the northern ten tribes also returned uh, and became a part of this reconstituted people back in Judea. And first of all, they established their own homes. They established uh, their own sustenance. They, they got their, their fields going again and, and kind of put their, their livelihood in place. And then they started undertaking this task of building the temple. And it was an arduous task. They met opposition from without and opposition from within. Shortly after starting to build, and Cyrus had made provision, you, you read this again, that he, he ordered that, that from his own treasury, the wealth be given to build this temple. So they had the resources, but they began to meet opposition from the provincial rulers around Judea. And that opposition, that hostility, became so fierce that finally these these Judean exiles just gave up building. they stopped building altogether and that continued on until Cyrus was succeeded by uh Darius Darius the great and we'll see and then the work began again. But when that work was shut down, the people were just totally discouraged, and God raised up. Zechariah and Haggai, two prophets, they're in the minor prophets, who were contemporaries, and he sent them to those exiles in Judea to encourage them to get on with the work, to not give up. And part of the reason why they were giving up was because it was not only this constant opposition and hardship that they were facing, but the fact that what they were doing didn't even seem to be worth it. Haggai records that there were those who were old enough to remember Solomon's temple, and what they were doing seemed like nothing in comparison. And so they're like, what's the point? We're trying so hard, and and it's just a constant opposition, and we can't seem to get anything done. And even when we're done, this is going to be nothing, so why are we wasting our time? And essentially what those two prophets were sent to tell them uh, or to encourage them was that this is important that you do this work. This is important that you complete this task. And as we're we're going to see, on the other side of that, what they were doing would not be ultimate. It was important, but it would not be ultimate. So there's opposition from the outside, opposition from the inside. But they um, recommenced the process of building the temple in 520 A.D. This was uh, under Darius... And then it was finished four years later in 516 BC. So the temple was torn down in 586. It was destroyed. It was completed in 516. There was no sanctuary for Yahweh for 70 years. And that period of 70 was what Jeremiah had decreed this exile would last for in order that the land would gain back the Sabbaths that it had lost. Remember how God required that there would be a sabbath every seven years where everything would lay still well it was all now laying still but in a a desolate form so the temple is completed in 516 bc the exiles have returned and then some 70 years later you have the rebuilding of the the walls of jerusalem remember walls were important to the the security the establishment the settledness of of any city or town of any size. So the rebuilding of the walls, which you read about in Nehemiah, was the way in which the city of Jerusalem was restored. Its security was restored. And yet, and you read this in Nehemiah, still very much under Gentile domination. The sword and the trowel idea, right? The builders were building with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other hand because they were constantly meeting again opposition that was coming against them this whole process was arduous but in the end the city was completed the city was rebuilt around uh, 440 bc something to that uh, that effect and so god had shown himself faithful remember he said through isaiah i will commission this man cyrus he will be my mashiach and he will say let the city be built let the temple be built And those things had happened. And for all of the amazing, uh, astonishing uh, aspects of that, that God had accomplished this through a beleaguered people, oppressed, constantly uh, afflicted, constantly undermined, all of this had come to pass, and even by God moving upon pagan kings to provide for them. As I mentioned, after Cyrus was dead, one of the governors and Darius became king, one of the governors sent a letter to Darius to say, we want you to investigate the claim of these Jews that this king Cyrus had issued this decree. And so Darius, who knew nothing about any of this, went back and searched through the archives, and he found Cyrus' edict. And so he sent back to these governors, these rulers in the area, uh, and he said, Cyrus did indeed decree this. So you need to let them get back with this task of building the temple. And not only that, but Cyrus decreed that the the resources come from the royal treasury. So you, the rulers of the provinces, you give them everything they need to make sure that this gets done. So God prevailed providentially through pagan uh, rulers, through the dominating Gentile power to see to it that this happened. And yet for all of that, amazement for for as astonishing as that was, all of that return and restoration that that had taken place hadn't fulfilled what God had promised. It was necessary. It was important. And again, you see this in Haggai, you see this in Zechariah, you see this in Malachi, the three that are classically referred to as the post-exile prophets, the ones who are speaking to the the recovered exiles back in Judea. And they're all uniform in their message. What you're doing is important. It's necessary. Don't be discouraged. Be about the work. But understand this isn't the end. This isn't the culmination. It's a step in the process. So that lets us see then uh, how this was unrealized promise. The exile, in other words, had not really ended. Physical exile had ended but essential exile was still in place. And there are three things that I want to mention. The first is, and all these things we've talked about in some capacity, the first is that there was no Davidic king on the throne. Remember the Davidic covenant was the pledge to David that God would establish David's house and throne and kingdom forever in a son to come from his line. They're back in Judea, they've rebuilt the temple, they've rebuilt the city, but there's no son of David on the throne. And in fact, as we discussed, God had revealed through Jeremiah before Jerusalem even fell that he was cutting off David's regal line. And specifically, God said, I'm going to do that in this man, Jehoiakim. He was the second to the last king in Judah. God said, I'm cursing this line of David in Jehoiakim. No son of his will ever sit on the throne. Well, the Babylonians deposed Jehoiakim after three months and hauled him off to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, put his uncle Mattaniah on the throne and renamed him Zedekiah, a vassal. He was a Babylonian vassal. He was Judean, but he was a vassal of Babylon. So Jehoiakim wasn't the last king in Judea, but he was the last in David's line because Zedekiah was his uncle. So God's word had come true. No descendant of Jehoiakim in that royal line would ever sit on the throne of David. Now Zerubbabel, who was responsible for, Zerubbabel was kind of the civil ruler during that early period of recovery from exile. And you see him mentioned in Zechariah's prophecy elsewhere, Haggai, he's the one who oversaw the rebuilding of the temple. And he was the legal heir to Jehoiakim's throne he doesn't take the throne and there's no indication that the judeans who were back uh, who had gone back to jerusalem ever tried to put him on the throne he was a civil authority and he presided over the rebuilding of the temple but he did so as under the authority of cyrus and then darius there was no son of david on the throne Nehemiah later would be the civil ruler who would oversee the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, but he wasn't a king. There was no king in Judea. And no Davidic king meant no Davidic kingdom. So you can't say that when the exiles returned, that was the restoring of the kingdom. There was no son of David on the throne. The Davidic covenant was yet unfulfilled. and think back again even to Ezekiel God promises David I will raise up David he will be he will shepherd my people that did not happen so Haggai and Zechariah the post exile prophets two of the three also underscored that truth they were saying build the temple it's important get this done But this isn't indicating that the renewal of the kingdom is at hand. In fact, it's not going to come for a while. They recognize that God, the house he ultimately intended for himself, was not that second temple, nor obviously was it Solomon's temple, which was gone. That temple was important, but it wasn't the house that he ultimately intended for himself. Because the Davidic covenant had promised that this son of David would build that house. And there was no son of David arising to sit on the throne. So this temple was somehow important, but it wasn't going to be the ultimate house that Yahweh would inhabit. And we'll talk about that even more in the third piece of this. So Zechariah promised that, uh, he reiterated this fact that it would be this Davidic heir that would build the house. So as, as you read through, and if you remember from our series through Zechariah, in his night visions, in chapter 4, it's this vision of the lampstand, and the olive trees, and the oil going into the lampstand, and the proclamation is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's in the context of Zerubbabel and the exiles rebuilding the temple. And God says, keep building, keep building. But it's not by might, it's by my spirit. It won't be by your triumph. And when the capstone goes on this, it will be to shouts of grace, grace to it. Yahweh will build this house, and that leads then into Uh, chapter 6, where Zechariah is instructed to make a crown and put it on the head of the high priest. Right? He crowns the high priest, Joshua, and then he says, behold the branch. He will build the house of Yahweh. What's happening is the exiles are rebuilding the temple, and God is saying, be fervent, keep at it, keep building. But ultimately, this will be by my spirit. And now in this, this last vision is this idea of crowning, or, or this last prophecy in that section is the crowning of the high priest. He will be a priest on his throne and he will build the house of the Lord. Branch. That's a reference to the Davidic branch, the branch of David who is to come. He will build the house and men will come from north and south and east and west and they will build into, they will be contributors to the building of this house. And so Zechariah was telling the exiles, this building, this physical structure that you're building is important, but don't forget, ultimately it's the branch of David that will build Yahweh's ultimate house and he will do so as a king priest. So the post-exile prophets are once again saying, what you're doing is important, don't get discouraged, stay at this. But they're projecting the people's vision farther out into the future and saying, this is not the end. And in Malachi's prophecy, he says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. But who can abide the day of his coming? So there's no Davidic king. And the second piece, just very quickly, is that there's no restoration of the northern kingdom. As I said, some uh, of the exiles from the northern ten tribes made their way back into Judea, but the vast majority of them, even as uh, many of the Judeans themselves, never came back. When I say Judeans, I mean the people of Judah, of David's kingdom, So even though some Israelites from the northern ten tribes made their way back, there was no national restoration. There was no formal kind of large-scale restoration as there was with Judah, where you had a decree to the people of Judah to go back to their homeland, rebuild the temple, rebuild the city. The story of Esther is set in that time period. Where is she? She's an Israelite in Susa. That's where Nehemiah was living when he decided to go back to Judea. Susa was uh, one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. It was kind of the administrative capital of the Persian Empire. So most of the exiles didn't return. And I wanted to read that uh, um, Ezekiel passage because in that Ezekiel passage, two sticks, take the stick of Israel and the stick of Judah and bring them together because when this messianic work when when I do this restoration when I breathe life back into these dead bones it will be to bring back together Israel and Judah remember david was the one who brought the 12 tribes together and formed one cohesive kingdom bound to him in devotion And so David, even in his own typological significance, the one who is his greater son that is to come will also unify the whole house of Israel in himself. He will be the one who will bring together. You see this in Isaiah 11. This root and stem of Jesse will stand as a beacon, a banner for the nations. He will bring back to himself the remnant of of Israel and Judah and the nations too will be gathered in. So the fact that the northern kingdom has not, that Israel and Judah haven't been reconciled in any sort of formal way shows that the promise to David has not been fulfilled. And then the last thing is Yahweh's presence has not returned. This is the most important thing. Exile is relational alienation. And as I said a couple times now, the physical exile that happened to Judah and Israel was just God affirming the relational alienation that already existed. Them being sent away out of the land and taken into captivity didn't create exile. It simply affirmed that exile was the nature of the case. The readings that we've read even from Lamentations as well as Ezekiel showed that we have sinned. That's why God sent us away. And before uh, Judah fell, the Lord's glory departed from the sanctuary. You read that in Ezekiel 10 and 11. God left his dwelling place. He abandoned his sanctuary. He abandoned Zion. He abandoned David's kingdom before it all collapsed. Now the temple has been rebuilt, but it's an empty structure. There's nothing in the scripture and nothing in Israel's histories or Jewish records in the second temple period that indicates that Yahweh's Shekinah had returned to his dwelling place. And as I mentioned here, uh, I think that a likely significant reason for even the lethargy, the disinterest, and even kind of the the unfaithfulness of the priesthood in this second temple period is tied to the fact that we're just making empty gestures. Yahweh's not here. If you read in Malachi, God finds fault with the priests that they bring the lame and the worthless and what they don't care about. And they sniff at their the offerings and they say, this is also tiring. It's tiresome. Why are we doing this? Well, it would have seemed, in a sense, vain. They're doing all of this, offering these sacrifices to a God who is not there. He has not returned. So the uniform message of the prophets, even up to the very end of the Old Testament record, is that Yahweh will one day return to Zion. But he has not yet done that. And if Yahweh hasn't returned to Zion, it means what? Exile still continues. Because he would return when he would reconcile himself. That's why I wanted to read that Isaiah passage. Yahweh looks around and he says, is my arm too short to save? Am I too weak? Am I incapable? Am I impotent? Can I not hear? Do I not know what's going on? No, but this sin, this alienation has created a separation between us. That has to be reconciled. And there's no one to do it. There's no one. I will come, I will do it. I will come and I will do it. And so Yahweh is going to return to Zion to put all things right. And until he returns, there cannot be the end of exile. His temple sits empty. Which means that the alienation between him and the people, the distance, the separation between him and his covenant household is still in place. And the only way that 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 exile can be uh, resolved is for God to redeem them. That's what we talked about last time. Redemption is God liberating them from that captivity. But to liberate them from captivity, he has to liberate them from that which has taken them captive. And as I say here, it's not the Gentile powers that have taken them captive. God simply used the Gentile powers to physically bind them as testimony to the fact that they were relationally estranged from him, that they existed in a spiritual bondage, a spiritual captivity. So they needed to be redeemed from that power that had actually taken them captive. And in Isaiah's prophecy, you see the heralding of that, the announcement of that tied to this forerunner person, chapter 40. A forerunner was someone who would go ahead to make preparations or to investigate or whatever uh, in, in the ancient non-biblical world, it would often be uh, as an army was making its movement through. They didn't have high-tech communications equipment and satellites and all of that. So they would send out scouts to kind of, in a sense, lay the way or, or, or uh, establish a path through for the army to keep moving, and even to accumulate resources for logistics, for supplies, and all that sort of thing. But it was also something where dignitaries or rulers would send someone ahead of them to announce their coming or to prepare for them. And in some instances, and I think this is more the idea with the Isianic forerunner, Someone who would go ahead to prepare the people to receive their king who was coming back from a triumphal conquest, some sort of triumph. If you ever saw that movie Gladiator, when Commodus rides back into Rome and there's this massive parade and celebration, he's coming back as the great conqueror, right? And even guys in the Senate are saying, he's showing himself like he's a great conqueror. What has he conquered? He hasn't done anything. But that's what the way the ancient world was. If a king would have done some mighty work on behalf of his people or his empire, some great act of triumph, he would send ahead forerunners to prepare the people to be ready to celebrate and receive him in a celebratory way, a great parade. And sometimes these kings would even parade their captives and even the, the uh, opposing ruler that they had conquered, bringing him in in chains, dragging him behind in, in procession. Paul uses that imagery. So th- that's the idea here of the forerunner who God is going to send ahead of himself to prepare for his return to Zion. Make the the high places low, make the low places high. Create a level, smooth plane for Yahweh's return to Zion. Under what end? The announcement that the good news, Yahweh is becoming king. That's what you see in Isaiah in that section 40 through 66. The good news, Yahweh's returning to Zion to take up his throne and reign. Having dealt with the conquering power that has taken his people captive. So Yahweh was going to return to Zion, as we saw even in that Isaiah passage, but as Redeemer. Yahweh says, I will come, I will put this right. How will I come? A Redeemer will come to Zion, to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, in order to liberate the prisoners from that which actually held them in bondage, not Gentile powers, but their own unfaithfulness that they could not overcome. Isaiah 59, your sin has made a separation between you and your God. Relational estrangement brought geographical estrangement. So God's return would signal the end of relational alienation. Not just forgiveness for offenses, not just legal atonement for breaking of laws. The ending of relational estrangement. But that itself, as we talked last week, depends on reconciliation. End of exile means reconciliation. And reconciliation means addressing that which has produced the alienation in the first place. That's why the prophets associated Yahweh's return to Zion with the coming and the triumphal work of the Messianic servant. This is the servant songs in Isaiah. He's the son of David who would come and win the decisive battle, which would be against sin, death, and hell. How was Yahweh going to do this? He was going to send a redeemer. Yahweh would come in the person of a redeemer, and what would he do? He would take up Israel's own existence in himself. And so that's why I said even if you take Isaiah 59 uh, this is my covenant with them, my spirit which is upon you, and my words which I put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or your descendants' mouth after you. Even if we say that's referring to Israel, Israel, it's only true of Israel as Israel becomes Israel in the one who comes and embodies Israel. So Yahweh will come through this thing called incarnation. He will take up Israel's own existence and fallenness and brokenness. He will bear that alienation in himself in order to end it and reconcile himself to Israel and ultimately to the human race, even in this thing we call incarnation, the word becoming flesh. That's the story that the Old Testament tells. Now, how exactly it would play out, we don't see that. We don't get our arms fully around it. It's kind of a mystery until the actual birth of the Messiah. But this is the story that the Old Testament is telling, and this is the way that we're to understand the coming and the person and the work of Jesus himself when we talk about atonement for sin, when we talk about redemption, when we talk about reconciliation, when we talk about propitiation, whatever, all of those things have to be understood through this lens. Well, let me close us in prayer then, and um, then we will sing our last song. Father, these are glorious things, and I know I say it all the time, but I, I pray that you would make them be glorious to us, don't let them remain just an issue of confusion or um, cloudiness, some fog that our minds are in. But, but let them become gloriously clear in our thinking, in our hearts, and let them become compelling in the way we understand our faith, the way we understand our walk with you, the way we understand our place in your purposes, the way we understand your, your design and your ultimate accomplishment on behalf of the world. What it means when we say, Jesus is Lord. What it means when we say, good news, our God reigns. Give us hearts and minds that are caught up in these things and transformed by them. And Father, even as we close our time of worship now and singing this last song, may uh, the singing uh, minister to us and bolster, encourage the things that we've just considered. As always, we ask these things in Christ's name, amen.